Happy Monday, friends. This is Cordelia on the We Heal Together podcast. I'm so, so, so excited for today's episode. We have Soraya Shamali on today's episode. If you don't know, Soraya is the author of my all-time favorite book, which is called Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger. It was recognized as the best book of 2018 by the Washington Post, Fast Company, Psychology Today, Autostraddle, and NPR, and it's also been translated into several languages. Beyond being the author of this incredible book, this staple that you need for your bookshelf, she is currently the executive director of the Representation Project, which she discusses in the episode a little bit today. She's an award-winning author and activist. She writes frequently on topics related to gender norms, inclusivity, social justice, free speech, sexualized violence, and technology, as well as she speaks on the topics that I just went through. She is a contributor to multiple anthologies, most recently Free Speech in the Digital Age, and Believe Me, How Trusting Women Can Change the World. Her work as a writer, activist, and organizer is featured widely in media, books, and academic research. She currently serves on the national boards of the Women's Media Center, Women in Journalism, and the DC Volunteer Lawyers Project. She has served on boards for several different organizations, and as an activist, she has spearheaded successful campaigns challenging corporations to address online abuse, restrictive content moderation and censorship, and institutional biases that affect free speech. In 2013, she won the Association for Education and Journalism and Mass Communications Award for Feminist Advocacy and the Secular Woman Activism Award. In 2014, she was named one of Elle Magazine's 25 Inspiring Women to Follow in Social Media. In 2016, she was the recipient of the Women's Institute for Freedom of the Press's Women in Media Award. In 2017, she was the co-recipient of the Newhouse Mirror Award for Best Single Feature of 2016 for an in-depth investigative report on free speech in social media and a Wikipedia Distinguished Service Award for exemplary contributions to the advancement of public knowledge and educational content. In 2019, she was awarded the Feminist Press Feminist Power Award. Prior to 2010, she spent more than 15 years as a market development executive and consultant in the media and data technology industries. Overall, she is so amazing. Her work is incredible. Her writing is, I mean, it's so inspirational. It's so fact-packed with research, and she offers so much to the world, and I'm honored to be able to chat with her. Like I said, she is an idol of mine. She 
her book is single-handedly the best book. It should be required reading. I have links in the show notes for today's episode. It has her social media accounts, her information, her website. It has her book if you want to order her book. Just so you know, I'm not receiving or getting any kind of compensation or kickback. That link is just there. And this is no kind of advertisement. I just, I strongly encourage you guys to get the book. Since I started my Instagram, since day one, since I had one follower on my website, that book has been listed as my favorite book. And I strongly encourage you guys to get it. She also discusses in today's episode a little bit about the book that she's writing. So be sure to follow her and follow her work and support her. And I know that I absolutely am going to be getting that book when it comes out. So stay tuned with her for updates. I'm sure that I will be posting about it as soon as, you know, it's published as well. But I really want to encourage you guys to support her work. She also talks about the representation project in today's episode and she mentions their newsletter and that is of course where she is the executive director currently. So I'm going to put that in today's show notes as well. If you after listening to today's episode you're interested in staying up to date with what the representation project's doing or getting involved in any way, definitely check out the show notes and you know be sure to follow Soraya on Twitter. She has a Twitter. She has Instagram. You know, all the social media. Be sure to follow her and stay up to date. If you are new to the podcast, I release episodes every single Monday. My name is Cordelia. This is the We Heal Together podcast. I will put all my info in the show notes as well. If you like the content, I also have an Instagram, which is at Codependent Recovery. I will stop talking and let you guys listen to what you came here for, which is the incredible, incredible woman that you're about to spend the next hour with. So enjoy, enjoy this episode and thanks for being here, guys. I just want to start by saying, you know, this moment chatting with you feels really surreal for me. As I've said many times, I mean, you're the author of my favorite book, and I wanted to just start the episode by honoring that and honoring this moment and recognizing you and showing you some gratitude. So thank you very, very much for being here today. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to read the book and for your support and kind words. I really appreciate it. I'm delighted to be here with you today. Well, I appreciate that so much. And, you know, this call is happening February 2021. So I just wanted to kind of start off the podcast by asking you how you're doing today. What has life looked like (laughs) for you lately in 2021? (laughs) 
I, 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 it's pretty funny. I'm laughing, and <laughs> my therapist says, "When I laugh, I'm really angry," which <laughs> is very funny um, in many ways. Um, I think I'm pretty much uh, really in the middle of what I perceive to be a very common thing right now, which is true pandemic fatigue. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, you know it. It's been a year almost to the day since uh, since I actually personally more or less went into my house and don't often come out for purposes of what used to be called normal life. I was sick last February for two weeks before I really understood what was happening. So I had already been sick and home um, and never, that didn't change. Um, and so I think that um, it's winter, we're in a pandemic, I'm really cold, I'm from the Bahamas <laughs> and the cold doesn't really, it's not something I particularly like or enjoy. Um, although I just took a really wonderful walk with a friend who enjoys brisk walks um, and I enjoy spending time with my friends. So we put those two things together. <laughs> those things together um but otherwise honestly i'm just we're fortunate not to be sick um right. and to be home and happy together um which is really all you can ask for at this point oh yeah and it's funny when you mention walks i feel like a lot of people are kind of living for those <laughs> those daily walks yeah. you know those those have been real life savers so well, I'm glad that yeah, especially in the cold. That's right. Yeah, you can't you can't you can't meet and do other things that easily. Exactly, um, and I know exactly what you mean. I think so many people are experiencing that burnout and fatigue right now, where yeah, you know, everybody's getting a little bit stir crazy. <laughs> I think that's right. And but you know, it's it's hard because I think part of it is just we're you know we need novelty we need change and right the hard part of finding any of that right now that's and i'm lucky because i have three four sometimes family members um and we get along and we love each other and i often think you know they're just people who don't have that you know they they just don't um in the uk i have a daughter in the uk and a very strict lockdown, but they have a out if for risk of loneliness. If you're at risk in, of loneliness uh, in London, you can pod with someone that you can see regularly. Oh wow! Isn't that interesting? That's so interesting. That's that's really cool that they have done an initiative there to you know factor in mental mental health issues and that's really innovative I like that <laughs> well yes they have they, they have taken a good approach to loneliness to understanding it yeah that's really incredible I'm impressed by that and before we get into your book today I wanted to actually ask you a little bit about yourself as well um, so you're currently mm -hmm. the executive director of the representation project is that right Yes, that's correct. Okay. Can you just tell me a little bit about what the representation project is and what you do there? Um, 
kind of what the mission is and in case any listeners would you know like to support the representation project maybe even just some information of you know how people could get involved sure that that would be great uh so the representation project was founded 2011 so 10 years ago and um we use transformative storytelling through documentary films uh, social impact activism and education to challenge uh, gender norms and stereotypes, their uh, intersections with other forms of discrimination, and to create alternatives, healthy alternatives in society. What we really want to be able to do is deconstruct those norms and stereotypes in ways that help people understand how they operate personally, politically, professionally, and then um, really think through what the positive, healthy alternatives are. So we make our own documentary films, which are made by Jennifer Siebel Newsom, who uh, is a filmmaker. She started with a film called Misrepresentation, which looked at sexism in media and showed the ways and we his women's equality and leadership made a second film in 2015 called the masculine which is about rigid masculinity norms and the kind of damage that those norms do to boys and men in society and most recently a third film called the great american lie which is about the way that uh occupational sex segregation gender norms um and role expectations contribute to systemic racism and social immobility and inequality Um, And we take all of that and it informs our social activism. And we take that model of filmmaking, storytelling and impact, and we uh, use it as the basis for a youth media academy where we train young people between the ages of 13 and 24 and how to do the same thing, how to make films, how to make change in their own communities. Um, And so we have social media platforms on all of the ones you would expect, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and we encourage everyone to check out our films and our youth programs and get engaged with our social activism, sign up for our newsletter. We have a sort of take action newsletter every week. Um, so that's, that's what we do. Well, that's great. And I think it, it seems like that's the direction that kind of the generations are sharing things now. You know, I like how you described the storytelling and the videos and that seems to be a really powerful way to share and get out information these days. Um, so I really, I think that's a great project and wonderful. And I'll be sure to put a link in the show notes for anybody that oh, you know you. wants to check that out. Um, yeah. In the, you know, pandemic and while you've kind of been, you know, going through the burnout, I'm curious, are you writing anything now, whether it be books or, you know, articles, any kind of writing? I am. I've been writing a book about uh, some of the issues we just talked about. So um, the care economy, the valuation of care, trauma, how we determine what, whose needs get paid attention to, um, and how we can think about dismantling sort of binary ways of thinking about all of these problems so that we can achieve uh, healthier 
lives and healthier societies. So it's a combination of um, it's a combination of all of those ideas to really to really think about what it what it means, particularly after this period that we're in, um, to think about caring for each other. We just had an administration that really appeared to reject even the notion, the baseline notion that we should care for each other. You know, every time we have a conversation about people who refuse to wear masks, um, that's a conversation about caring for each other. We don't wear masks to protect ourselves. I mean, we do, but in fact, the mask wearing is in fact to protect other people. Right. You know, and so that those are sort of the ideas in the in the book. Yeah, I think that's that sounds like an amazing book. And if it's anything like your last one, I'm sure it'll it will be equally equally as great. When yeah, well, thank you. you came up with the idea for that, was that kind of born during the pandemic and during this time of caring, or did that kind of predate? Well, I'd been writing, like, in Rage, I had a chapter called The Care Mandate. Right. Um, and it actually became two chapters. It became a chapter on caring and a chapter on the idea of mothering and motherhood, right? Not right. not necessarily being a mother, but what it means to for people to assume that you should mother people right. um, as a function, as a role in society. And... Um, so, so my book proposal over several months morphed, it, it went sort of from one thing to the next. And I had a book proposal last January that was about this. It was about care and, um, interpersonal dynamics and the way that then fed into our economy and then COVID hit. And I was talking to my editor, editors one day and, um, there, there were several of us on the call and everyone was describing their responses to the lockdown and the pandemic. And someone said, well, it's also traumatizing. And I said, you know, I think that's interesting. I actually think what we're experiencing is grief, which is a little different than trauma. Right. Um, and then I explained why and how it was related to care. And my editor said, well, I want you to write about, about this. And so I started thinking about it and my response was, yeah, I, I can write about this idea of trauma, um, but I personally, the whole thing is gonna be a sort of feminist care book in that framing, but I, I'm sticking to my plan of feminist care. So that's how, yeah. I, how we got here. <laughs> oh, I, really, I think that'll be great because I mean, just from the few chapters that you mentioned, your writing opened my eyes to so many things that I had never considered about care just in Rage Becomes Her. Um, you know, I was, as you were talking, I was kind of thinking about when I was reading those chapters. One thing that really stood out for me was when you mentioned how women kind of get ingrained that we have to care for others to the point that we're the ones who buy gifts. You know, we take care of. Yeah everything like I had never even stopped to think about that before until I remember like setting down the book and thinking wait 
That's so true, <laughs> you know, and I remember actually. Well, I mean, that's how we learn. Yeah. You know, we learn to be good people, kind people, nice people. Um, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just think that, and I, I think this is what I put in the book, at, to what cost? Like, where are the boundaries right. that? Where does it cross over from one way of being to the assumption that you will completely subsume yourself in this role, that there's nothing left of you because right. of this role. Yeah, that's a, that's such a good point too. And it, it is interesting. I mean, currently in my personal life, my best friend, she has a two-year-old and then my brother and his wife just had a baby who's a few months old. And so it's interesting kind of watching, you know, two couples that I'm really close with shift into these parenting roles. And your book has made me think a lot about how, you know, society's expectations of those roles. And even prior to reading your book, I think, you know, I might have just kind of thought the same things that everybody else was thinking and not really pause to I've tried to be very intentional around any conversation that has come up that you know talks about care with parents now and I feel like I'm very defensive you know whether it be at work or wherever where there's that narrative of somebody's having a baby and oh well she'll have to take off and there's not that same expectation for you know the male partner and just a lot of really interesting, you know, topics and things that I hadn't really stopped to think about because I myself am not a mother yet. And so, you know, it's just kind of interesting that I hadn't experienced that yet. So I never had really made it a part of my like feminism, I guess. <laughs> I had never really yeah. stopped to think about it. And so I really appreciated, you know, you educating me on it. <laughs> Well, I, well, listen, I know, like, my, like, our whole lives are an education, right? right? Like, that's the thing. That's so true. Well, one of the things that really impressed me, and I'll kind of pause so everyone knows that your book, the one that we're kind of focusing on today is Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger. And one of the biggest things that I found just so impressive by your writing was obviously amazing, but I was blown away just by the research that went into the book. And I wondered if you would shed some light on what your process is like in researching books and how long does that really, t you know, take you and, you know, for listeners out there who haven't gotten the book yet, I'm sure when they get it, they'll see there's so much you know, research that went into it. And um, so, yeah, I would love to hear about that. Um, so this this book is, was, I think, an anomaly, The Rage Becomes Her, because I wrote it, um, I wrote it between September and December of 2017, 2017. Okay. And so roughly three and a half months to write it. Um, but I would say that years of writing, years and years of writing, 
were part of my research process for that book. And in fact, you know, I had written a detailed outline and I sort of had all of my base of knowledge around me in my books and my writing and my thinking. So I wrote the book in a relatively short time that included all of that experience. Okay. Um, so it's hard, it's hard to say because in fact, to me, I'd been researching the book for years without knowing I was necessarily going to write that book. So by the time I sat down, I just had a lot at my, in my memory and my fingertips to pull from. I ended up having frankly, way too much research. Like I like research, so it's not too much for me, but my publisher balked because <laughs> I think it was 140 pages of source material, uh, which was almost a third of what the book itself was. And so we had a conversation about whether to publish the the citations or the bibliography and the bibliography or neither. Like, I'm like, no, 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 something's got to go in there. So <laughs> I'd rather the citations go in than the bibliography. So the bibliography is online. Um, so that was sort of my process. And I wrote, I, before that, I was writing articles for a wide variety of platforms for, um, you know, a couple of weeks for several years. And so I stopped doing that so I could just focus on the book, which I did for those, that right. three and a half month period. Well, that makes sense that, you know, you kind of had, it was building up over time and, you know, it was a topic yes. that you were familiar with, but I mean, you can just, I am like you, I love data and I love, I love numbers and just, you know, whatever the research is what kind of ties it together for me. Like your writing is phenomenal, but then having that extra layer of, okay, wait, here's the empirical evidence behind what she's talking about. is right. really awesome. Um, well, and I like it because I think we, I mean, I personally wish that as a younger person, I'd had that kind of information available to me. So I wanted to make it available to people who want it, like who appreciate yeah. it, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. That that can be one of the most daunting things. And it's so nice to know there's this amazing book and resource to have. Because um, especially even though there's an, the Internet, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean you know where to get the right sources and, you know, accurate information. Yeah. I am curious, did you pick the title for the book? Um, we went, yes, I did. I talked to my agent, who's wonderful wordsmith, about all of this. Um, and I was, I was a little on the fence about this one. But in the end, I really liked the fact that it worked on lots of levels. Um, yeah. It was a play on Death Becomes Her it's a play on the idea that we should always be attractive and beautiful and becoming. Um, it's a play on the idea that rage becomes material in our bodies, like right. physically affecting us. So it sort of did all of that work in one short phrase. Yeah, I love it. It's, I definitely have never forgotten, <laughs> you know, it sticks with you. So I, I thought it was a great... Well, that, 
<laughs> Thank you. I'm glad. There was a lot of conversation about that. I could see that. I mean, that has to be a lot of pressure involved when you get to picking the title of the book. So, uh, well, in the book, I really liked how it started in terms of the story you tell of your mother and the china plates. And I wondered if you would feel comfortable sharing that story here and sure. maybe just telling, getting into why you chose that story, you know, as the starting point. So I was thinking about how we learn things as girls and how we learn things from watching the adults around us. And I was fortunate because I had my parents and grandparents and lots of aunts and I had a lot of adults, right. <laughs> had a lot of adults <laughs> and a big extended family. And I spent a lot of time as a child watching them and listening to them and um, thinking, I mean, when you're little, that's what you do. You, you study the people around you. Um, and so I was thinking about anger and what my earliest memories of someone being angry really were. And this memory really stuck out because it wasn't even like I was a very young child. I was very fortunate. I didn't have parents who were angry or abusive or they, they didn't yell at us. I mean, that was just not my experience, but I was about 15 and I'd come home from school and my mother, who I describe in the book as a sort of classic firstborn, responsible, Catholic, caring, nurturing, um, ultimately self-sacrificing mom, very calm, you know, very ladylike. She was standing on a, on a, a terrace holding a stack of china um, and she was throwing the plates one at a time like frisbees into the air and over this railing its balcony and they were breaking and she was completely silent and I was in the in the kitchen she was outside of the kitchen and I remember thinking huh this is not normal like my mom is breaking plates like she's <laughs> throwing the china into the air um and she and i thought she must be really mad about something like why else would you do this and she came back into the kitchen and instead of saying anything about this she looked at me and very cheerfully said how was your day <laughs> and so i write about what that meant to me you know like oh so we're not going to talk about that and right. she's she's just not going to talk about the destructive act that she just engaged in or that she was angry, clearly, or that she was breaking symbols of domesticity and marriage, right. which she clearly was. Um, and through writing the book, I learned that she had done something a lot of women do. Um, we think of a model of anger um, that is essentially characterized as anger in, anger out. And and the stereotypical way of thinking about that um, is that some people keep their anger in and some people keep their anger, put it out. And men are, quote unquote, better at letting their anger out. And we usually think of that in terms of destructive rage. They yell or they stomp or they break things or punch walls, but women keep it in and they ruminate. And in fact, that's 
a standard that doesn't apply to women in the same way. It is a male standard that we use as dominant. For women, the model is anger in and out, but in a different way, which is anger into a relationship or out of the relationship. And so when women do things like throw plates, they're getting their anger out, but they're doing it in a way that doesn't actually disrupt the primary relationship that might be making them angry. So mm -hmm. she was angry at my father. And it's not like she said that to him or cut up his clothes or did anything <laughs> like that. She right. put her anger out, but, but out of the relationship as well. Um, so that's what I was describing. That I feel like the imagery of that scene just it comes across so powerful. So I can't imagine witnessing it, you know, when you were a child. Um, well, and it was just funny because I asked her 40 years later, I said, <laughs> hey, you know, 35 years later, I'm like, hey, do you remember that day? And she burst out laughing and she goes that was just the one you saw she goes <laughs> i broke a lot more plates than that um you know it was pretty funny she was laughing about that it when funny. when i talked to her that that's kind yeah. of awesome that in a way that she's like yeah that that was my coping mechanism okay I, yeah I and, and basically yeah she goes i i I realized that it was like a possibly expensive problem. So I didn't ever throw <laughs> expensive plates. That's so great. Well, especially yeah. China. I mean, I know growing up, I'm thinking like, I don't think that my mom ever used her, the China. I know that she had a set that she was given, you know, when she got married, but, but there, yeah, very. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I don't think that she used them. So, when I was reading, you know, the book, that also kind of stood out to me as like, well, well. And you think about it, you're like, you know, if you were in a certain type of family, um, and had the means, there was a a there was a set of china that, in the end, was symbolic. You didn't use it for except right. for like very special holidays, and it was off limits. I mean. That's a really freighted idea, right? right? The the whole thing. So yeah, I, I just yeah, it really did stick in my mind. Yeah, I, I appreciate you going through that. And as you describe it, I mean, it it sounds like she that was her outlet, as you were saying, of kind of going out of the relationship. Mm -hmm. Did your parents ever argue? or express anger, I guess is a better way to phrase it in the relationship towards, I know. I never saw them argue. Okay. If my parents argued, they argued privately. And then just in terms of the emotion of anger, did either parent ever model that, I guess? Like, was there ever... Yeah. Well, I think that was the point of my mother's plate throwing. Right. There, there was, you know, it was just, I think, ultimately unacceptable for her as a good person in the culture and society that she lived in to demonstrate anger. That was the model, right? right. The model was that there should be no anger. And my father also, he just, he, 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 he wasn't, he, he didn't uh manifest this idea of an angry man he wasn't right. physically violent he he just 
wasn't, he didn't show anger. As a matter of fact, even as little kids, my mother was the parent who disciplined us. Um, oh, it, and she didn't ever really do it in anger. She, she was just like, well, these are consequences, you know? Right. And so, no, I, they're just, I didn't grow up with a lot of anger in my family life. That makes sense. And I mean, for whatever reason, I, it seems like a lot of families, you know, myself included, it, that emotion of anger, it seems like a foreign concept, which I know you talk about in your book where, I mean, it, it's hard for people to even pinpoint, you know, exactly or identify, I guess is a better way to say it, identify when you're experiencing anger. Where did you first learn about that emotion or where did you first learn to identify like, okay, I think I'm experiencing anger right now. <laughs> right. So I, I took me a long time. And in fact, I would, I, I think it's because I started feeling the physical toll and not understanding what was what was happening, right? So for years I had terrible headaches and um, they were probably stress headaches. Um, I had TMJ, which is the clenching of the jaw. And, um, you know, I would go to doctors and they only really responded in a kind of cursory way that was more or less, well, let's get rid of that symptom. No one ever asked why I might be clenching my jaw, right? right? Or why I would have stress headaches. It was just assumed that as a, a working mother in particular, that that was part of my existence and that I just had to roll with it. And th that in turn was just outrageous to me and he, and, I, and I was like, well, you know, I'm trying my hardest. My spouse is trying his hardest. Um, and yet here we are. This is the situation. And I don't want to live this way. Right. And so that really led me to think, okay, well, when I start breaking down this question of exhaustion and stress, and every woman I knew, like, I've never entered a room. And, yeah, I, well, let me put it this way and I think this is more true today than even before, you could enter a room filled with men and women and ask the women how they are. And a, a large majority of them will say, you know what, I'm so stressed or I'm so tired or I'm at my wits end or, but they'll never say I'm enraged or I'm angry, but they are, they are describing being tired and stressed and exhausted. I've never heard a group of men say those things. I've never actually yeah, heard a group of men talk about that. And um, we know from all of these studies that, in fact, women are twice as likely to experience that and to say that. And they're doing the majority of unpaid labor. And now, unfortunately, millions of women because of COVID have lost their jobs right. and are entirely responsible for elder care, child care, family care. Um, and th this is just put a bright spotlight on this problem yeah um but anyway yeah no you highlighted a, a bunch of great points I mean the first thing that popped in my head was when you were talking about your own headaches and your own experience 
I had never really thought about until the chapter where you kind of had talked about where doctors have trouble identifying pain specifically in, I mean, more so in black women, but even in women in general. Uh, And just a lot of the data in that chapter, I had never really thought about. And frankly, as I read it, it really made me identify with my own privilege of, okay, well, I'm a white woman. And so this makes sense that when I've gone to the doctor, you know, this hasn't necessarily come up for me. And to be fair, I've not really had any pain situations yet. Yeah. But as you talked about, you know, the issues that you were facing with headaches and trying to figure that out, it just made me also think about, you know, I can't remember the exact statistic, but it was like men were more likely to get prescribed pain medicine. Oh yeah. You know, and things like that. And and women tranquilizers, like, what does that say, right? <laughs> right. So it, it's like you almost have, it sounds like at least that you had to do some convincing on your part to be like, no, this is a real issue. And <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think we hear that over and over again. It's very hard for women to have their medical situations uh, and pain taken seriously we wait longer for doctor's appointments, wait longer in the emergency room, wait years for accurate diagnoses. Um, I mean, that comparison that you mentioned, I think is a really telling one. And I think that it was a study um, of how doctors responded to people who came in to, I think, emergency rooms with pain. And in fact, men, particularly if they were white men, were dealt, you know, they were addressed much more quickly and were given pain relief right. medication. But women uh, were given tranquilizers, which doesn't reduce your pain. It just makes you less likely to demand that someone pay right. attention, right? That's a t- and if you're a black woman, you don't even get that, right? You're right. you're literally you don't get that. And so, I think that 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 sexism and the combination of sexism and racism is hopefully being better understood in the medical profession. Although I will say that, you know, the recent stuff shows the majority of um, medical students, uh, I want to say it was at UVA, um, not statewide, but I, I don't remember, but it was a large study. A majority of them believe that black people have higher tolerance to pain. Yes. I mean, this is just outrageous, right? Yeah. This is just out an outrageous, ridiculous lie and stereotype. Exactly. I remember exactly what you're talking about. You had put it in the book. It was UVA. It was, and I forget what year it was, but it was yeah. definitely medical school students. It and... was 2016 or 17. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that blows my mind, honestly. Um well, it's interesting because actually I was reading your book for the first time when I was visiting my brother and he is, uh, he went to medical school. So he is now, and he is white like me. And, but yeah. I mean, he went through all of medical school and he's a smart, he's a great guy. I love him, but I finished, you know, reading and I was really shocked, like 
you had mentioned the J. Uh, Marion Sims that yes statue yeah so I asked him you know like oh my gosh I never even learned this stuff in school growing up and I was curious yeah. and I asked him you know did they teach you that in medical school and he said he had no idea about it like he had never right you know been never heard of it exactly and I you know, then when I got to the your portion about the UVA statistics, I was like, well, that makes sense because, you know, they're not even, it's like horrible that you would think, I don't know, I think that we just assume a lot of times that these people that went to all this schooling have been taught all these aspects of things, including, yeah. you know, racial history and which is extremely relevant and it should be taught. Um, but I found that really interesting and really shocking, honestly, when I asked yeah. him, I, I was like, it's awful. yeah, exactly. Um, and the other point that you had mentioned about coronavirus and women getting hit hard with that. I mean, I think that it's so true. And I think, I think your book made me kind of reevaluate how I even approach the topic of the wage gap and because I feel like there there is always some guy in whatever conversation I'm having about wage gap that you know focuses on the numbers always, always. <laughs> yes and, you're and he'll always say women make choices that's why yeah yeah and but your book actually opened my eyes again I think because I had not been a mother myself, I frankly had not really looked into much of the statistics or any of that stuff, but it really opened my right. eyes to that part of the conversation of, you know, I think you wrote like right. men, men do like one third of the work that women do at home. And I was really surprised by the statistic of men overestimate how much like they think that they're doing. Oh, isn't that a good work. one? <laughs> um, yeah, there, there just recently there was uh, maybe six months ago in the middle of the pandemic, a very large national study was done. And um, over 50% of men said that they were doing 50% um, of the childcare in their homes. And only less than 3% of women agreed with that. Oh that's a gigantic perceptual gap yeah right that's yeah. a that's a that's that's a chasm right for men yeah. to think that they're doing 50 50 in that proportion and for 97 percent of women to say that is not happening right yeah that, that is... that's an overestimation <laughs> right that is huge i had not seen that so that's very i mean that's very telling and I mean, I can say from my experience, I believe it because, frankly, most of the women that I'm friends with and close with, I feel like most most do do a lot of the work. And, you know, that's just kind of how it seems to go. Um, one of my favorite quotes, I wrote it down, and you wrote, Single childless women are the only women who report that they have the time and freedom to pursue interests, ambitions, and hobbies at the same rate as married heterosexual men do. 
and I that just really stood out to me like that statistic and sentence I mean it says a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> so I really I it says a lot and and yeah it says a lot and I and I think too that it says a lot in tandem with the fact that women initiate the majority of divorces and after divorce women do not remarry and men do remarry they tend to remarry and then they remarry younger women um who might be unaware or be more accommodating Um, but those are very clear widespread patterns in our society you know men are just happier and healthier in marriage um and women are less happy and healthy in marriage yeah heteropatriarchal marriage that's absolutely true and yeah and and yeah i have to one other thing that i really always strikes me about this is the the kind of almost entertaining irony of conservatives saying feminist feminism has destroyed marriage because in (laughs) fact what's destroying marriage is these completely outdated male privileged entitled norms that they would like to you know to exist in perpetuity and there's really you know with women's greater economic freedom and education they're just not putting up with it exactly and they shouldn't be expected to right exactly it's like no now what happens is when a woman is abused or cheated on she's at least given a better opportunity like there's more of a chance that she'll be able to leave and move on so I appreciate that point yeah. one of the other I just have a few more questions I was going to go through but one really big thing I wanted to hit on was you discuss which I think any woman that listens to this will be able to re- relate to Women are constantly called crazy, irrational, drama queens. And then even, you know, within the races, the different racial stereotypes, like the angry black woman and, you know, those kind of, those labels that we put on women. And that seems to be associated a lot of times when somebody is, it's like anger angry woman is used as this as kind of the launching point for all these different insults and I right. wanted you to kind of maybe discuss you know how can we work with those stereotypes or what could we do as a society or you know whether it be a man or a woman that's listening to the podcast that when we hear these, these labels or names, yeah, right. Well, I mean, I think the first thing is to be aware as individuals, to, to be aware of how immersed we are in this culture and how hostile the culture is to girls and women expressing need or making demands or holding people, particularly men accountable uh, when they fail to recognize that need as legitimate or the experiences we have as valid. Um, we all live in the culture. We, we are of the culture. And so we all hold these biases. So I always stop myself and I think, how am I responding to a woman who is making me uncomfortable because she's angry? I'm uncomfortable 
Right. It has nothing to do with her. I'm uncomfortable because I have these biases, right? Am I holding her to a different standard? I wrote the book partially um, because in the wake of the 2016 election, it was just so clear that the presidential candidates were held to different standards. And yeah. as I say in the book, male candidates were able to leverage populist anger and to display anger in a way that helped them because it confirms all of our stereotypes about men and leadership to be angry. Whereas women candidates can't do that. Hillary Clinton had to stay calm and poised and unruffled and unemotional. And the result of that was that people disliked her for being inauthentic. So she couldn't be authentic. This is the bind that we face, right? And so mm -hmm. Uh, the the idea the idea is that if the anger confirms our stereotypes as it does with men it's acceptable if it confronts the stereotypes as it does with women in virtually every context but the maternal context then it makes us uncomfortable but again if women are angry in a way that confirms our expectations, like being a mother or a teacher, for example, then we're we're more comfortable with that. It's why all these political movements led by women are often uh, framed in terms of their maternity, right? The right. temperance movement, women against drunk, mothers against drunk driving, mothers for saying government reform, the Children's Defense Fund. I mean, all of that, all of those words basically are a way of signaling to the society, yes, I know that my primary role and value is, is not as a woman, as an independent citizen, but as a mother, a reproductive agent. Now let me say my political piece. I've checked that box <laughs> off, right? Right. That's definitely true. It's like you've got to, you have to fit kind of society's expectations for that to even be a, yes. a process. That definitely makes sense. Yeah, so a lot of the listeners are survivors of abuse. Basically, just shedding light on the different kinds of violence that exist against women and the whether they have a, women have a right to be angry about you know the kind of violence that exists on a daily basis or even potential threat of violence that exists against them and just whether they have a right to be angry and kind of good one or two tips for processing that, if that makes sense. So I actually don't think anybody feels women has have the right to be angry in that way. We live with unconscionable levels of risk and threat and harm that ultimately are based in the threat of violence we are socialized to accept rape as a fact of life that we're supposed to navigate around um, and as individuals keep ourselves safe from instead of demanding that institutionals uh, that institutions stop uh, perpetrating a culture that enables rape and that rewards abuse. And, right. you know, I personally, I know this makes people really uncomfortable. I think women should be angry. And I wrote this, men should be angry. Yeah. Right. There's no reason why only women should be angry about this. Yeah. This is a problem that all of society should be doing something about. And that frankly, society doesn't care about at all. 
you know, if you are a person who is fighting uh, this type of abuse, uh, intersectional violence, uh, gender-based violence, you are literally considered a nuisance by the society. And so do I think we have a right? I think we are, I think we have a moral obligation that is different from the idea that we have some right that's to a do that. Distinction. You know? Yeah, exactly. That's a great distinction. Well, yeah. I really appreciate you kind of going through all these topics with me. And, you know, as I've said, love your book. And I hope that people buy this book and your next one sounds equally amazing. So I will be looking out for that one as well. And well, thank you. And I really love the work that you're doing and so appreciate your talking about this issue and um, love talking to you today. So thank you. <laughs> and thank you so much for being here. Oh, gosh, guys, that was an incredible episode. I hope you learned so much from it. As I mentioned at the beginning, support her, buy her book follow her on social media, check out the representation project on the show notes. I am Cordelia. My information is in the show notes as well. New podcast episodes drop every single Monday. Follow my Instagram on at codependent recovery. And next week, Dr. Alexandra Solomon is going to be on the podcast We are going to be talking about boundaries, so get really pumped for that episode as well. So, so, so excited for that. I'll see you guys next week.